Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Ezra, chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4, this sermon will overlap a little bit with last Sunday's sermon. I'm going to expand more on a point from last week, and then we'll move into some new uh, territory as well. Ezra chapter 4, let me read the text for us. Ezra chapter 4, starting in verse 4, going all the way through chapter 5, verse 2. Again, this is the word of the Lord, Ezra chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabiel and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Asnapar de- deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent to Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now, be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired." Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it, And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now the prophets Haggai 
and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless the reading and also the preaching of your word right now. I pray that you would give us receptive hearts and attentive minds. I pray for areas where we will no doubt be challenged, that you would make us humble and receptive and that we would be willing to hold fast to your word no matter what. And I pray you would give us great encouragement in your word today. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you look on the screen behind me, I thought I would actually give you a written form of the outline just for a couple of minutes uh, so you can see what's coming. The name of the message is Overcoming Opposition with God's Word. There are three points. Uh, Number one, God's enemies stop the work through intimidation. That overlaps with last week. Number two, we'll spend most of our time on point number two. God's enemies stop the work through political force. That's most of chapter four. And then point number three, God revives the work through his word. Now, I'm just going to take a quick moment here in case you're visiting or you haven't been for this series. You may be like, where are we? What's going on? We're in the middle of Ezra. I'm lost. So if that's the way you're feeling, just remember, God had sent the Israel, had sent Judah out of their land as punishment for sin, and they'd spent the 70 years in Babylonian exile. And then God, true to his word through Jeremiah, after 70 years, he would send the people back. He stirred the heart of King Cyrus, the king of Persia. Cyrus took over Babylon, and he sent Jewish people and other people back to their homelands. And he gave the Jews particular uh, power and authority to begin to rebuild their temple in Jerusalem and to worship God according to his law. And this was a major moment in Israel's history. But not long after the work is started, opposition arises, and the work keeps coming to a stop. Now, if you look with me here at chapter 4... I'm going to put another slide on the screen. I'm going to probably leave this slide up. I don't know if you'll be able to read much of it. At least you can see the major words here. I'm borrowing part of that graphic from a pastor named Colin Smith who had a helpful message on this text. Are you guys ready for things to get complicated for a couple minutes? Are you ready for this? You look ready. So when when I was reading Ezra a few months ago, starting to prepare to preach through it, I have to just tell you I'm embarrassed, and maybe this happened to you just now. I had no idea what was going on in chapter 4 when I read it, just a few months ago. Uh, it wasn't the first time I'd ever read it, but I just felt lost. And here's another thing I completely missed, uh, maybe three or four whenever months ago when I was reading this to start really studying it for the series. I had no idea chronologically what was happening in this chapter. Did you know that in chapter 4, we jumped ahead from where we were a hundred years almost about, and then we came right back to where we were? Did you, did you know that that happened? I didn't know that happened. So what, what you've got to do is you've got to pay very, very close attention because most of these kings are mentioned in chapter 4, not all of them. Sorry, Akimbises, you did not get mentioned in this chapter. He gets skipped right over. But most of these kings do get mentioned in this chapter. And if you trace them, what you'll see is just, just stick with me for a moment here. Uh, again, this is our first point that God's enemies first stop the work through intimidation. Look at verses 4 and 5 of Ezra 4. And we have to pay very close attention. So King Cyrus was mentioned in verse 3. At the end of verse 3, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. That's where we're at. And then verse 4, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus. So if you look on the screen, that takes us from where we are, which is 538 BC to 530, which is when Cyrus died. So we just jumped ahead eight years. 
Okay, but we're going to jump further. In middle of verse 5, all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, some people say Darius, but I'll say Darius, king of Persia. So we skip Cambyses and we jump straight to Darius. Do you see in the year 522 BC? So we just jumped ahead a pretty good bit right there, didn't we? That was, that was a jump forward there. It's about a 16-year period from where we're at to about to, to where uh, uh, we're going to be in a second. Now, imagine this. Imagine, and I actually did this in my Bible. You, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, this might help you. I put a parenthesis at the beginning of verse 6, and the parenthesis ends at the end of verse 23. And I think this will really help you read this chapter better if you at least in your mind have a parenthesis. So verse 6 should begin with a big parenthesis. The beginning of verse 6, you can put a parenthesis there, and then you put a finishing parenthesis at the end of verse 23. Here's why I say that. In verse 5, we jump forward to the time of Darius, right there, right? 522 BC was his first year. And then in verses 6 to 23, we jump ahead, do you see, all the way past Ahasuerus, all the way to King Artaxerxes. We jump way into the future, and we look at a future threat to the rebuilding project that happens in the day right around the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. And then at the end of the chapter, we come right back to where we started with the reign of Darius back here in 522. Who is, raise your hand if you now need GPS right now to figure out what is going on. Okay, so here, let me just try to simplify. If you look, the reason I put a parenthesis between verses 6 and 23 is you can read from verse 5 straight to verse 24, and you miss nothing in one sense. So just one more time, verse 5, I'll connect it to verse 24. Just watch verse 5. They bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Skip to verse 24. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Do you see? So we just jumped back to where we were. So Okay, if you're following, here's why I think, it's hard to know, why, why did this ha- why did we jump ahead 100 years to the time of Artaxerxes and then come right back to Darius, why? And biblical authors do this a lot. This is called a thematic structure, not a chronological structure. So what the author is doing, if it is Ezra, Ezra is taking the theme of opposition to God's work in Jerusalem, and he's pausing, he doesn't, he's like, okay, let's just pause where we're at, and let's look into the future, and let's see future opposition to the future rebuilding work. Now, now follow me. They've already rebuilt the altar, chapter 3. Right now, remember they laid the foundation again, and they're trying to rebuild the temple itself, right? That gets put on pause. And then we stop right there. The temple's not rebuilt. And the author, Ezra, perhaps, takes us 100 years into the future and says, okay, there's going to come a day when Ezra shows up and Nehemiah show up, and the temple will have been rebuilt. That already has happened, but the walls have not been rebuilt. If you know the book of Nehemiah, they're rebuilding the walls. That's what we're jumping forward to with Artaxerxes. And what we're going to see is, just like they receive opposition to build the temple, so 100 years in the future, the, the, the ancestors of these people are going to receive the same kind of opposition about rebuilding the walls. And here's the point. Ezra is saying in his own day, guys, if you think right now God has been once again paused and that God is not sovereign and that God cannot get this work done, remember what he did 100 years ago during the reign of Darius. God did the impossible. He brought about sovereignly circumstances that allowed them to finish building the temple when it looked like it couldn't happen. And guess what he's going to do today with us? In our day with Nehemiah, he's going to do the same thing. God's going to overwhelm the enemies 
God never loses at the end of the day, right? At the end of the day, God is going to overwhelm and overpower his enemies, and he's going to bring about his sovereign purposes. And in this case, it is the rebuilding of his people. So the first point here, again, is that God's people first stop the work through intimidation. If you look one more time at verse 24, the work of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, let me just say here, Next Sunday, we're going to leave Ezra for two or three weeks. I don't know how long exactly. Two or three weeks, we're going to go to the book of Haggai. And you say, why? Well, guess this is amazing. You know when Haggai, when he starts his little tiny two-chapter book that most people are not as familiar with, okay, when, when Haggai begins his book, guess when it starts? The second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That's this exact moment in history. And so Ezra mentions the, the ministry of Haggai and says it turned the ship around. It changed everything. And so we're going to spend a couple weeks looking at what Haggai's message was that changed God's people, and we'll come back to Ezra, Lord willing, after a couple of weeks in Haggai. All right, if you're kind of getting oriented to where we're at right now, the people right now don't have any forced reason to stop building the temple. They're just scared. Remember last week? Instead of taking their fears to God and worshiping Him, finding safety in the altar like they did before, now they're letting their fears get the best of them, and they just stop working. I'm just going to tell you next week, Haggai is going to come at them for this. This is not okay. These people are now starting to, to focus on other things, and they're neglecting the temple for 16 endless years. Nothing is done in the rebuilding program. And I'm just going to tell you, this is sin on behalf of God's people. It's unbelief giving way to fear. This is sin. So let me ask you. And whatever it is the Lord is doing in your life, whatever the Lord has you doing, whatever obligations that are in front of you, whether through home, family, whether it's through people you're living with, whether it's through your children, through school, through job, what are the things that the Lord has for you that are in front of you right now that the Lord would be calling to you to, that you feel like right now, if you're being honest, I am simply neglecting this act of obedience out of fear of man. Here's what I mean. There might be a specific thing that you know the Lord wants you to do because His Word commands you to do this thing. And you know how easy it is to procrastinate that kind of obedience? You go, okay, I'm going to do it eventually. This is what I guess the people probably said. We're not going to not build the temple. We're just not going to build the temple this year, right? There's a kind of ungodly procrastination that says, I know eventually I'm supposed to do this thing. And the Lord probably wants me to do it sooner rather than later, but it's so unpleasant. The fear of man is a real factor. I mean, I'll be honest. I'm not going to say what they are. There's some stuff in my mind right now for myself that I know I'm starting to push off out of fear, not out of an obedient heart. I I can see it right now in my own conscience. I'm thinking about this. I I can think of one or two things right now that I need to start moving forward on, and I can tell you, I can name the person I'm afraid of. They're not in this room. There's a person right now. I, I know if I do this thing, I'm scared of what this person may think. So what is that for you? We need to start making progress and moving forward. Don't let fear uh, hold on to us and control us. All right, let's move to point number two. God's enemies stop the work through force. This is a major point in the text today. It's covering verses 6 all the way to 23. It's that whole parentheses part. That whole section is God's enemies stop the work through force. Now, if you're tracking along, um, this is 100 years in the future. Okay, we're jumping into the time around of Ezra and Nehemiah around that time, and we're going to see here again. Now, 
Let me try to break this down so that we can apply this to our lives. What you have here is two things. You have two letters, okay? You look at your Bible here, verses 7 through... Um, verses 7 through uh, the beginning of 10 is an introduction to a letter written by God's enemies. The, the letter starts in the, the early part of verse 11 to Artaxerxes. And so from verse 11 through verse 16, you have a letter written by the enemies of God's people, basically the Samaritans essentially. They're writing a, a letter of accusation against God's people and they're sending it to the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. Okay? And then verses 17 to 22... You can see that next paragraph, perhaps in your translation. 17 to 22 is the king, Artaxerxes, responding by letter to the accusation and largely agreeing with it and allowing them to, by force and power, stop the rebuilding of the wall right before Nehemiah shows up in Nehemiah chapter 1. In fact, if I can just tell you, I think this moment when they force the wall to stop being rebuilt, I think this is the exact prelude to the first verse of Nehemiah. When Nehemiah gets word, the place is in shambles, the wall is in disrepair, nothing is being built, and Nehemiah's heart is broken, and guess who he happens to be? He's the cupbearer for who? King Artaxerxes, the very king who, who said, let's stop the work. So Nehemiah, now let's think about this, Nehemiah is going to go into the king's presence sad. Remember this? Nehemiah chapter 1, he goes into the, now you know that's a, that's a no-no. You, you don't walk into the king's presence with a downcast face, the king could have you literally killed, they were so arbitrary, right? Because the king could say, you're supposed to be happy, I'm king be happy. And Nehemiah comes in intentionally allowing discouragement to be on his face. The king says, what's wrong, Nehemiah? Why are you downcast? He was the cupbearer. And Nehemiah says, how can I be glad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruin? And he is objecting to the very decree Artaxerxes just signed off on in this text. Is that not risking your life? And God moved sovereignly. In Nehemiah 1, what happens? The king suddenly feels compassion for Nehemiah. And the king says, what do you need? And Nehemiah says, well, I'm going to need a, a lot <laughs> of stuff. You know, I, I got to just say this now. The king says to Nehemiah, what do you need? And it's one of my favorite prayers in the whole Bible. It just is just a sentence in Nehemiah 2. Nehemiah is terrified. He says, I was afraid, you know. The king says, what do you need? And Nehemiah knows his life is on the line. Artaxerxes was an interesting fellow. And it says this. The king says, what do you need? And the text says in Nehemiah 2, so I prayed to the Lord, and then I said, and he answered, I need this and that. And I love that prayer because that prayer was actually probably shorter than the description of the prayer. Because how much time did Nehemiah have to make that prayer? How much time is there between statements in a conversation? How, what do you need, Nehemiah? Nehemiah has what? Three seconds. Lord, help me. I need this. I think, that, I, think, I think his prayer was Yahweh help. That's my guess. Like it was, he had no time, and yet that prayer gets recorded in Scripture. So I, I want you to hear, in discouraging times when there's fear, when, when you don't know what to do, God keeps track of our tears in his bottle, the psalmist says. He keeps track of our tossings and turnings on our bed when we are struggling, and he also keeps track of one-sentence prayers for desperate help. Yahweh help, probably, made its way into a verse in the Bible. So, so hear me, when, there, when there's discouragement, we need God, God keeps track of even the shortest and most desperate of prayers. But we see here, the, the, the rebuilding project is going to be stopped by political power. So let's look at this for a moment. Verses 7 through 10 of Ezra 4. Verses 7 through 10 is an introduction. Here are some basic things that we learn about the accusation. And I'm just going to try to make these directly applicable to our lives. So just follow this, okay? L listen to these. Number one, 
The, the complaint comes from, quote, trustworthy sources. Now, they're not trustworthy, truly, but they were considered trustworthy by the king. They're big-name people. So, number one, the, the, the complaint comes from, quote, trustworthy sources, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabiel, the provincial leaders. Number two, the complaint has the backing of other people of high rank, the rest of their associates in verse 9, the judges, the governors, the officials. Now, do you see? You got the big-name people, and then the second-level big-name people all back up this letter, okay? Number three, this letter and the complaint is geographically widespread. Look at verse 9, middle of verse 9. The Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations. Is that a geographically diverse group of people? So it's not just high-ranking people and second-level high-ranking people who agree that Israel's bad news and Jerusalem is a bad place to rebuild, but then you have a large geographically diverse group of people agreeing, yes, Jerusalem's bad, God's people are bad, don't let them do this. But then number four, it also derives from others who've been in the land for a long time. Look at the middle of verse 10. The rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapar, do you see that, Osnapar? He's better known in history as Asher Banipal. Osnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. So, follow this. All the high-ranking people say what they're doing is bad to rebuild Jerusalem. Their associates say it's bad. All these people from diverse nations in this large area say that this is bad. And number four, there's a historical connection. People who've been here for over 150 years agree. The people Ashurbanipal or Asnapar brought here over 150 years ago, they all think it's bad too. Now, do you see what the authors are doing? They're stacking the deck against God's people. Now, let's apply, it's not hard to apply this. Now, this text was actually quite hard to turn into a sermon, I will tell you. But this part is actually, you, you can see the application is very easy. Today in our world, increasingly... Do you feel like the elites are against the biblical worldview? Absolutely. Can you keep a job in Hollywood today if you believe in the Bible consistently? No. Can you really be a well-known Fortune 500 comp company leader, or can you have a high position? In it's very hard if you're going to hold to a biblical worldview. Even with, uh, with professional uh, baseball recently, you've probably been keeping track of these teams that want to bless these kind of crazy things, and then certain Christian baseball players will stand up and say, I object to what my team is doing. And some of them, after getting called out on it, changed their tune and apologized to the pride movement. I'm so sorry for what I said. It was not loving, and they, they kind of take it back. And other people stand strong and probably risk their whole career. I mean, risking professional baseball career to stand strong. But here's the thing. Today, increasingly, we're going to hear all the elites oppose you, and even their associates oppose you. And guess what? All these different nations all around the world also oppose you, and they might say what they said back then. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history, do you? See, back then, history worked the opposite of how it works today. Does this make sense? So back then, they thought something that had been around for a long time was more credible, right? The, long, the older it was, the more credible it was. If you could trace your religion back to Abraham, that's really good. It pushes you way back to 2000 BC. That's, that, that's good. But today, it's the opposite, right? The older your religion is, the more what? Primitive outdated. You're reading a book that was put together before they understood modern theory of disease, and you trust that's in the infallible Word of God. And what do we say? Yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I absolutely do believe that. So today, instead of saying you're on the wrong side of history, because this has been around so long since Asher Banipal, 
What do people say today? You're on the wrong side of history because what we believe is the new and improved thing. This is the modern thing. This is the sophisticated thing. To this day, I joke about it with high school students every year at some point. My favorite argument against the Bible, and I'm sorry, it makes me smile, I can't help it, is uh, when people state the year and then say that that's their argument. Come on, man, it's 2023. That's my favorite against the Bible argument out there. And, and that, that's a silly kind of way of saying it, but what are they saying? They're saying history's moving on. And as Voltaire, you remember French, Voltaire, the, he was not a Christian, and he, he wrote a whole bunch of different books, and Voltaire said, in a hundred years, the Bible will be a forgotten book. Modern, this is, you know, the 1800s, he says, modern man is taking over, and uh, religion is going to be a thing of the, it's superstition, man. Nobody's believing in these ghosts anymore, these, I mean, come on, let's, let's get, it's superstition, get, get the Bible out of here. And um, he said, in a hundred years, the Bible will be a forgotten book. And last I heard, I haven't checked on this in years, but last I heard, Voltaire, as you know, is, is actually the one who is dead and gone, but uh, we barely remember who he was. But uh, I, last I heard, this is maybe 20 years ago, his house had been bought by the French Bible Society, and they were selling, they were selling Bibles out of his living room. So, uh, so much for Voltaire's prediction. So, uh, every time people predict the end of Christianity, I just smile, because uh, it's not going anywhere if China has anything to say about it, if South Africa has anything to say about it, uh, if South America has anything to say about it, because they do. Christianity is the one religion that just keeps moving its home base all around the world, right? I mean, Islam stays where it started, in the Middle East. It's, just, that's, it's, it's always going to be its home base. Uh, with, with Hinduism and Buddhism, they're going to stay over there in the kind of Asian countries. They're going to stay kind of where they've been as their primary home base. Christianity blew up first in Jerusalem, it moved up, right? And it moved eventually towards Europe. And then it moved from Europe into North America. And now it's gone to South America. It's blowing up in China despite the government's opposition. It's blowing up in, uh, in, in Africa, south of the Sahara Desert. Christianity is doing just fine r- right now. And uh, it is not the wrong side of history to disbelieve in what Christianity teaches. Now, I want to address some of the... Uh, I want to address how these people attack God's people. Because how they d- did it back then is not that different from how they do it today. And I, 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 tra- I put down five things that I kind of jotted numbers in my text so I could trace them. And, and you don't have to write all these down. I'll just give them to you here. But number one, look at verse 12. Be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. Now, here's, here's their number one, here's their accusation. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. This is so shocking. I mean, I shouldn't be shocked. It's God's Word. But it's so amazing how relevant this text is. It's an old letter written to an old king we barely remember, and it's so radically relevant to our lives. Listen to this. Does the work of God get labeled wicked and rebellious today too? God commanded them, rebuild the walls. This is, rebuild the city was God's command. And what's it being labeled as? This is wickedness. This is rebellion. This is evil. So be expected that the world will put negative terms of moral indignation, and they will label the Christian worldview with those words. They will label you with those words. (laughs) I once, I won't give details at all here. I once had a Mom, okay, I've taught at multiple places. You know, I'm not going to say where I was, what school I was at. I'll just tell you, I taught a girl one time, junior, senior year, something like that, maybe junior year, and uh, her mother wrote in to some of the people over me 
in the school system, and they said that the Bible teacher, yours truly, uh, the Bible teacher was a homophobic sexist. And uh, I had a sit down with somebody about this, and they said, okay, this person says that you are a homophobe and that you are a sexist. And here, here's what I'm telling you. I don't think I was teaching anything that was out of line with, with this book right here. But here's what, I'm, here's what I know. You're going to get labeled stuff if you believe this book. Even though I don't think, I mean, every once in a while I might get too intense in class. I might even get a little irritated at times. And I'll have to apologize to a student. That's pretty rare. I don't, by God's grace, normally do that. I don't see any clear sin that I sinned against this girl. But she took it as, because of what I taught in Scripture, I was a homophobe, I was a sexist. That was her interpretation. So are you going to be ready to be labeled things that are not true of you? Because of your commitment to God's Word, it's coming. If it hasn't already happened, it's coming. And here's what we do. When that happens, it's not time to hit back. You, you know this, right? At work, when you get called something, that's when if there's ever a time to joyfully and graciously share in the sufferings of Jesus, it's right there. Because what did Jesus do when he got grossly misrepresented? This man's trying to start sedition. He calls himself a king. He's trying to overturn the Roman Empire, right? That's, that's the accusation. What did King Herod say when he's born? There's a king being born down the street. Let's kill him, right? I will not have a threat to my throne. What do they say to Jesus? I want to get the verse correct here. Listen to this, Pilate. The whole company of them arose and brought Jesus before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself was a king. He stirs up the people. This man is no good. He's evil. And, and what does Jesus do? First Peter, uh, First Peter 2. When Jesus was reviled, this is, this is what we have to do at work, around family members who are not believers, who don't get it. This is how we respond, like Jesus. When he was reviled, I mean, you know what the verse is going to say, but let me stop. He's God in the flesh, and his creatures are making fun of him, spitting in his face, hitting him, covering his face, saying, prophesy if you're a prophet, who hit you? And smiting him in the face. If you were in the position of Jesus, how would you respond? And yet, what does he do? When reviled, he did not revile in return. If, if there's anything in the Bible that should take your breath away, it's that when God became a man, we attacked him lied about him, called him names, and what does he do? He loved us in response. What does he pray? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This is how Christians respond to criticism that is unjust. It doesn't mean you never try to clear your name if you're accused of something falsely. There's a place to try to clear your name. There's appropriate ways to do that. I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is we don't respond in the way that we are talked to it says here, Jesus did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. By his wounds, we have been healed. Listen to this. First Peter says this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Listen. So that when they speak against you as evil doers, are you going to be called evil for faithfulness? Yes, you are. Are you ready, okay? So when they speak against you as evildoers, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So when they speak evil of you, you respond with good deeds 
and you let your light shine in that dark moment, and the way your light shines is graciousness, kindness when it makes no sense, right? When they know that they're probably being more critical than they should, and you don't show it on your countenance, on your face, even your expressions don't have a hostility in response. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for you. That's how Jesus responded to your personal sin. When you reviled him with your sin, he responded with forgiveness through his death. And we must reflect that to a culture that needs it. Listen again. For the time, 1 Peter 4. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Listen. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They make fun of you. But... They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the sake of time, I'm going to go through some of these pretty quickly. Second accusation, verse 13, Ezra 4. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Is the accusation about Christians not paying taxes is that an old, that started back then, and did Jesus get accused of the same thing? And what did Jesus famously say? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. We've known this story for a long time, but just remember, what does he hold up first? The coin, and whose image or likeness was on the coin? Caesar. Okay, if this coin of the money is made in Caesar's image, give it back to him. Whose image are you made in? Your life belongs to God. I think that's what Jesus was saying. That's the most brilliant response to a trick question. So that's a false accusation ultimately. Number three, verse 14. Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king. Let's stop there. What is ultimate in these people's minds is the honor of the king, not the honor of God. Now I want you to hear me on this too. When the world accuses you of things, just know, in their value system, Jesus' glory is never the top priority. If it was, they would be a Christian. So just, just know that their criticisms are coming from a worldview where something else is in first place other than Jesus. And that should af affect how we interpret what they're saying. Does that make sense? They're going to have something else on the throne. It might be, the, the, you know, this business will suffer if you do this, right? They're going to have something in first place, and it's not going to be Jesus. Allow awareness of that to influence how you interpret it. Number four, we're going to skip down to middle of verse 15. It says, this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. Uh, that was why this city was laid waste. Now, let me ask you, did, um, have Christians been accused of sedition? Yes. Let me just mention one here. Acts 24, Paul before Felix. Just one part of this, Acts 24, listen to this. They laid before the governor, Felix, their case against Paul. We, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, etc. Are they, okay. When Paul preaches truth and a riot results, they clearly blame Paul. But here's the deal. Paul was not trying to start riots. He was trying to preach Jesus and the truth. The rioting was the fault of the rioters, not of Paul. So that's a false 
That's a false implication that they're making here. Th- these people are seditious. No, no. If, if riots come, that's not the fault of the truth teller. Okay, number five, verse 16. We make it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. So they exaggerate the effect of what uh, these people obeying God would look like. For the sake of time, I'll just say that the king essentially agrees with all that they say. Look at verse 21. Therefore, the king says, Artaxerxes, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. Now, that decree comes in the day of Nehemiah. Verse 24, and take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read, before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. All right, we've got one more point. This will be brief because next week we'll cover this way more in detail, Lord willing. But we're going to move to our third point. God revives the work through his word. I got to tell you, this is awesome. Okay, so remember, when we get to verse 24, we just jump back to the reign of King Darius. We jump back in time, and let's see how God overcomes their refusal to build the temple out of fear. Here we go. 424. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So 16 years have gone by with no temple rebuilding. Turn to chapter 5, verse 1. How is God going to revive the work? 5 verse 1, now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. How does God revive his work amongst his people? He does it through the preaching of his word. God calls two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. He gives them his word to speak. They stand up and begin to preach his word straight from heaven. Thus saith the Lord. And as they preach and rebuke God's people for laziness and sin and idolizing their stuff over the temple, as they preach, it could have fallen on deaf ears. But God's spirit empowered God's work. And as God's word went forth, God's spirit empowered it. And what happened? The people started feeling conviction of their sin. The people started becoming revived in their work. Suddenly, motivation started to change. Joy started to flow. And the people began to rebuild the work. Let me read this quote here from one commentator. This is a good analogy. And maybe this is how you feel, just exhausted. Listen to this. Like an endurance athlete lacking oxygen and out of nutrition, the returnees are exhausted Weakened and floundering. Troubled by opponents, they lay fatigued and failing, their will and purpose adrift. Before them, a temple like a corpse uh, uh, sits before them and tempts them to believe that God had abandoned his rule over them. Enter these prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, administering the nourishment of God's word, their very presence reminded the disheartened that the God of Israel yet remains over them. They are still his people, called by his name as his very possession. He still blesses them, guards them, and gives them his peace. 
with the altar in its place and the temple foundation established, the beginning is now made on God's house proper. So I want to close with this point here. This comes from a book called The Compelling Community by Mark Dever and another author. This right here, I think, is very applicable, and then I will pray for us and we'll sing again. Listen to these words. How does God's Word revive us? Part of it is the church service, but there's more to it than that. Listen, listen to this. How do we not buy into the lies of the culture, the assumptions, the accusations, all those words were called? It can wear on you. You can start to believe it. You can start to say, well, maybe we are, maybe I should give up biblical conviction because it seems more loving. Listen. That's why the culture is so powerful. It shapes our perception of what is true and what is plausible. In a fallen world, culture becomes, listen, in a fallen world, culture becomes a plausibility structure of unbelief. It makes doubting the Bible plausible. The world does. For the, uh, it says here, it, um, in a fallen world, culture becomes a plausibility structure for unbelief, for the denial of God and the exaltation of self. That is why the apostles are so concerned about the unity of the local church. The church is a counterculture, an alternative plausibility structure for faith. Christian community makes faith plausible. When I am tempted to believe the world's lies, community helps me remember God's truth. Repeat that over and over again every time you have a doubt or a temptation and you have a typical week in my life. Repeat it a hundred times and you have a faithful week in the life of the church. Repeat it over and over, and you have the gospel preserved for the next generation. You see that as we, for each other, support each other in believing God's word, we become a plausibility structure for the truth, a counterculture for the hostile culture out there. If we spend too much time out there and not enough time in here with these people, we're going to start adopting the assumptions of the culture that are against Scripture. And we're going to start weakening our convictions because it's so hard to endure attacks over and over or assumptions. But we need to continue to encourage one another every day as long as it is called today that we not be weakened by the temptation of sin. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I do ask that when we are persecuted that we would endure more than that, that we would rejoice, knowing that they persecuted the prophets and even the Lord Jesus in similar way, and that those moments give us the opportunity to fellowship with Jesus in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. By any means possible, we might attain to the resurrection from the dead. God, thank You for the privilege of being dishonored for your name. As the apostles were beaten and left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be beaten for the name of Jesus. What an honor to share in that part of the suffering of Jesus. God, I pray that we would respond like your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was attacked, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting his soul to him who judges justly. God, help us to respond as salt and light in a very dark world, in a rotting world. Help us to be salt that preserves from evil. Help us to be light that lights up the dark with your truth. And help our lives, our countenance, our our tone of voice, our joy be so hard to explain for the unbeliever around us 
that they would see our good deeds and glorify you on the day of visitation, that they might even ask us for the hope that we have. So be with us now as we sing. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.